Thank you for joining Mind Your Brain. The mission of this podcast is to give encouragement and education to brain injury survivors and caregivers like you. We want to be your safety net. If you want to listen to this podcast again and share it to raise awareness around the world, please see our entire library of podcasts. Visit our website at Mind Your Brain Foundation. It's one word, mindyourbrainfoundation.org. You have heard many amazing recovery stories over the last two years on this podcast, and I am honored to bring you yet another example of powerful determination. And in this story, survival instincts. Together, Mary Margaret Scharf and I are going to bring awareness to the intersection of brain injury and domestic violence. My name is Candace Gant. I am a traumatic brain injury survivor and founder of Mind Your Brain at Penn Medicine Conferences and the executive director of the Mind Your Brain Foundation. Our mission is to introduce persons with brain injuries access to the highest quality educational material and resources to improve their recovery. Today, my guest is Mary Margaret Scharf, a retired attorney, a mother of two beautiful children, and a survivor of the most brutal type of brain injury delivered by the hands of her now ex-husband. Thank you for joining us, Mary Margaret. Your story continues to touch my heart. You're just amazing. And we're so honored and pleased to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Candace. I'm so honored and pleased to be here. Thanks for that. And welcome. First, I would like to start with asking you a question because I would like our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us about your background? Tell us who you are and let us get to know you. Okay. Um, my name is Mary Margaret Sharp. I'm after, named after my two grandmothers and grew up in Pennsylvania with my mom and dad and three brothers, very close family, very happy childhood. Um, and I ended up going to uh, engineering school, even though I wasn't considering myself wanting to be an engineer so much, but my dad said, you know, you're good at math and science. This will be an excellent degree for you. And so I listened and I went to Lehigh engineering, and then I worked for three years in a large manufacturing company doing project management, where I would renovate recapitalization of manufacturing facilities um, throughout the country. And then I decided to go to law school. And while I was in law school, I became very interested in energy law. And I went to the University of Connecticut School of Law, um, which is in the West End of Hartford. And I, after I graduated, I went to work as a lawyer in Washington, D.C., doing energy regulatory law and developing more into mergers and acquisitions and getting merger approvals for big holding companies of different various utilities and I also did litigation where we would be having expert witnesses from MIT and other very um, high level experts that I would be preparing, cross-examining and kind of a very an intense, an intense, but very enjoyable career. That's, that's again, uh, you continue to amaze me because that educational background that you have and the experience of course, being a lawyer, it's quite impressive. So thanks for sharing that with us. And I want to get 
to the meat of what we're going to talk about today. And I know that we're going to ask you to take you back to a really difficult time in your life. And uh, we'll just take it slow, however you can, whatever you feel is most comfortable to share. We'd love to hear about the January, it was January 6th in 2010. Tell us about the attack and tell us about um, anything you want to share that would express how violent, how brutal that situation was. Uh, I, I want to understand that. Sure. Uh, I met, his name is John Michael Farron. He went by Mike Farron when I was, and I just graduated from law school and moved to DC. And he was 13 years my senior, 13 and a half years, and never been married. Uh, we ended up having a kind of whirlwind romance, and it was very intellectual and interesting and really lovely. Mm-hmm. And then shortly in, I started to notice things which, to me, having never been around controlling a potentially abusive behavior, didn't really know enough to identify. And I was also this woman who throughout my life, just my dad always instilled in me, you know, you can do anything, you know, you're resourceful if you put your mind to it. And so I think so many women suffer from this being a pleaser to a fault and feeling like you can fix everything just by how you behave. And I, you know, that was me at the time. I didn't really see it that way, but in hindsight and really reflecting back on those years, I see it now. And about six months in, I broke up with him. There was never any violence, but, you know, a temper and very jealous. And I kept thinking, gosh, he's just jealous because I'm younger than him and he's afraid I'm not that serious. I'm going to leave. And once he sees that I'm very loyal and I have no intention of leaving, he's going to chill out. And then it'll just be like the beginning, which was so wonderful. So, you know, always looking like my glass half full. What's that? The glass is half full. I feel always. Like- optimist to a fault, you know, it's like my mom will say, you know, there'll be a pile of crap somewhere and Mary Margaret saying there's a pony here somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So that was totally me. And so I did break up with him and over, and he acted not, you know, horrible. Initially it was pretty horrible. And then over the course of several weeks, he was so kind and um, we ended up stick. I ended up going back with him a couple of weeks later and then it was really calm for the next two years. And, you know, in hindsight, I was kind of like, why did that go so calmly? Well, because I had learned all the rules and I'm a very quick study. Mm-hmm. And so I saw, like, you know, don't ever talk to someone too long at a cocktail party, pay close attention to him. Always have your cell phone available to answer a call. Um, don't go out with your friends after work. Um, there was just a lot of little things that weren't super important things to me anyway. And at the time I didn't see I was doing it. So we were together for three years when we got married and then on the honeymoon and actually the morning of the wedding, some things, you know, raised there, raised a lot of concern for me. And I remember that day being so, you know, sitting there in the front of the church thinking, gosh, just run out of this church but I was such a good girl that, you know, everyone had come in, like, don't make a fuss. Right. You know, don't make a make scene. A fuss. <laughs> and so I didn't, I went through with the wedding, um, on the honeymoon, there was another like very large argument. And I, even at that point I called my mom, which I forgot for many years, but she told me later after this attack. So like, maybe it was like 
I guess, 13, 14 years later. And she said, you know, you remember when you called me sobbing in the corner of like some room saying that you wanted an annulment. And I said, no, you know, you just got married. You need to work on this. And so, I mean, I told my mom, I was like, look, mom, like I was not at a point where I could have gotten away from him. Like, don't have a heavy heart about that. So we were married um, and things improved and were good. And there was a lot of good things about the marriage and there was never violence. We are married for 13 years. And, but he was, he ended up being the general counsel for Xerox and chief legal officer. And as things, and I always worked, but as things carried on, um, it became his behavior and his lack of, I would say, empathy for other people and how he would treat, because I was so well-behaved. So I was pretty much beyond reproach and he never put me down and just was always, you're amazing. And you know, so happy that we're lifting you up. Together. Mm-hmm. It was lifting you up and encouraging. Yeah, definitely on that pedestal. And I knew how to stand on the pedestal without falling off. So I was very, a very good balance at that point in my life too, mm-hmm. on the, you know, figurative pedestal. And, but other people didn't really have that in them so much. And I had Abigail, my eldest daughter, who's now 19, um, in 2002, And that was a big shift after when she was a baby that I started seeing. um, And that's a very common thing I learned since that, you know, once the person who is so controlling doesn't have your undivided attention, it can cause a lot of issues. And so, but then I was, you know, still working on having that, you know, happy life and um, not necessarily overlooking things, trying to hold them accountable for things, but also trying to manage and realizing at this point now, I have this child to think about and the marriage carried on. He eventually, he was up and we had moved up to Connecticut from DC because for him to be chief legal officer of Xerox and general counsel. And I started working from home up there and I was on the partner track at my law firm and took myself off that and was, you know, just very interested in being a mom. So we get up there and again, I'm thinking it's going to be great. Cause now I'm like really isolated in this country house and, you know, not neighbors right next door and I'm working at home and. Glorious, um, right. It, I can picture that how ideal, how beautiful a setting it would be to be working from home and having your family a fairy tale. Yes, it was on the outside, but it was also difficult because I was so removed mm-hmm. and it got to be, uh, it got to be a lot. I still had to take business trips. And there were times when, you know, if I wasn't back in my room, I would be at a business dinner. And if I wasn't back in my room, he'd be robo calling my phone. And so it was hard to manage at times, but he took early retirement from Xerox and I wanted to go back to DC so I could be in the office again. And he agreed to, to do that. And a friend of his, a longtime person he knew was white house counsel the newly appointed White House counsel. He had also been White House counsel for Reagan. And now George W. Bush brought him in as his White House counsel and wanted Mike to be his deputy. Mm -hmm. And so he took that job in the West Wing. And my office was, you know, less than a block away, right on New York Avenue and 14th Street. And we had, it was punctuated with a lot of drama and intensity. And, you know, Abigail's getting older and 
kind of not being able to navigate that same path. But still, at this point, there's no physical violence, and there actually wasn't until the very um, that fateful night. And so, not to give like over amounts of details, like there was, we made, came back to Connecticut. I ended up being pregnant um, with my younger daughter, mm-hmm. and. I thought, you know, at this point he had left the White House and I thought, well, now he's going to be happy because he'll be chill because now he doesn't have a stressful job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got that one totally wrong because when he wasn't working, he wasn't dissipating all that energy and intensity at work all day. And so he basically was following Abigail and I was litigating a big case then. And so I was very busy and pregnant and so I'd be working long days in my home office, but, you know, it was just, it became very unbearable. And throughout the year, I asked him to, to get help for his anger. And it was starting to affect Abigail and I said to him, very frankly, you know, I stayed with you all these years to protect her and now I'm pregnant and now you're being mean to her. And she doesn't know how to, to navigate this tightrope of acting in a certain way to not have you become upset. And so you need to address it. And he very much, his his response to this continually was that he liked who he was and he wasn't going to hold his tongue and he was going to tell people what he thought of them. And truly the only time that he really regretted was for, it was like a year and a half before when he acted nice to people for a couple of months because I told him if he didn't start to be nice to people, I would leave. So he said that was his biggest regret that he can think of in recent years as being nice for a couple months. Gosh, oh my gosh. And I, uh, that, that just hurts me. The whole story is, is uh, so impactful to people. I'm hope I'm thinking that people listening are going to understand you're fiercely protective of your family and your children and how that relationship with your husband was a bad influence on your ability to raise these beautiful children. Exactly. And as I think nearly all mothers can attest that you have this, this person that you brought into the world and you want to, and many, many fathers too, that you want to protect them and you want them to have a good life and make them confident people who can deal with difficult times as well as happy times. For sure. And how did this all lead up then? Because he wasn't physical, as you were saying, and and abusive in other ways, but not physically. And how did that all come together on in January of 2010? So in early December, I just realized, and he was even mentioning too, saying, well, we should just, this isn't working. We should just figure out how to set up separate, separate lives. And which seemed like a really positive move forward, but I knew that he wasn't going to let me really mean it. So I, but I used my logical brain. And even though there were threats over the years, he hadn't been physically violent. He had never been arrested for anything. His whole life was about the law, corporate Mm -hmm. ethics. Mm -hmm. He would vet, he would be the person vetting judicial candidates in the West wing at the, um, and when he was deputy white house counsel and so I just use my logical side of the brain. And even though I felt on the other side, there's troubling signs. I thought I'm going to co-parent with this person. And if I'm just kind right. and reasonable, 
And I wasn't looking for any kind of special treatment in the divorce. I wasn't, you know, I made some, I made less than he did, but I still had an amazing job as a counsel at a major law firm. And so I really wasn't worried about that. So I waited until after the holidays to serve him because I didn't want to have Christmas forever associated with this horrible divorce. And I wanted to make sure Abigail was back in school so that she wasn't there when he would get served. So I, on the morning of January 4th, had, he was served. Someone came to the house. I had taken Lily, Lily Rose, my four month old to a friend's house and waited. And he was served by a process server and called me and said on my phone and said, well, are you coming back home so we can talk about this? And I was scared and I was crying at my friend's kitchen table. And I said, you know, is it safe for me to come home? And eventually I did go home and things that day were fairly calm. Uh, he, he did, when I did get home, he left the house and said he had to go to the bank and Abigail was about to come home from school. And I said, well, should we be telling Abigail? And he said, well, yes, we're going to have to tell Abigail because she's going to notice something is different. And then he walked away again. Abigail's home from school. We're building this Playmobil dollhouse that she had gotten for Christmas. The two of us had been working on it and sitting at a coffee table uh, in the family sitting room area. And he comes in very aggressively and towering above us. And I can tell he's about to tell her in a not nice way. And so I try to tell her and then he interrupts me and he said, mommy had this stranger, give me these papers. Let me show them to you. And she said, first grade. And so he goes and get, go ahead. No, I'm saying, I'm agreeing that he's twisting the story. He's trying to tell me regardless. And my view is regardless of what the story is, you always put the interest of your child ahead of your own selfish. You don't use a child as a weapon, which he always knew she was my only weakness. And so he would wait to argue in front of her. So so he could silence me. And so I started to tell her and then he interrupted with the, the papers and he actually shoved them in her face. She's crying, holding on to me. And we walk upstairs. He does leave us alone and goes into the master bedroom and then says he doesn't feel well. And we really don't see him the rest of that day. So that's Monday, January 4th mm-hmm. on Tuesday. Abigail goes off to school and he spends the whole day trying to be so nice. Well, as nice as he can be. Um, He still, he still says he, uh, he doesn't regret. He, he doesn't, he still sticks with his view that his regret is being kind when he's just trying to appease me and holding his tongue on how he feels about people. And we went through that day of him trying to talk me out of the divorce and it remained calm. Mm -hmm. And I told him, I said, you know, I won't withdraw the papers because there's protections associated with the papers. And I don't want him then to refile someplace else. And where he knew he grew up in the Waterbury in Naugatuck, Connecticut, South of Waterbury. And he would always brag about how he knew all these people in the judicial system. And I just thought, there's no way for me to withdraw this. We're in a fair court in Stanford. So 
then we move forward to Wednesday. And throughout the day, the tenor of the conversation just kept escalating of him demanding that I call my attorney and withdraw the papers. And I told him I wasn't going to do it. And I would talk to my, I talked to my attorney and he said, you absolutely, your instinct is right. You can't withdraw the papers, but you can file a motion for reconciliation, which will table the divorce for six months while he seeks, if he's willing to go to therapy. Right. And so I offered him that option and I had put Abigail to bed. It was really late that Wednesday night. And there's a lot more to this story, but (laughs) in terms of the whole, what, what happened, but long story short, I put Lily Rose, I, I was breastfeeding her and um, she was four months old. So I fed her, I laid her down in her crib. He had wanted to talk to me once I got the both girls to bed, I walked downstairs and it was about 9.30 and all the lights were off. That just takes my breath away thinking about it. I'm visualizing that whole situation, how, how horrifying it must've been, what happened here. My heart was racing mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, yes remain calm. And as I went upstairs and I was walking down the hallway past the girls, my two daughters bedrooms, I just felt like I was being lured into a trap because he was in the master bedroom. Mm -hmm. And, but of course he had never even slapped me in 16 years. So uh, we're not thinking that I'm just thinking this is going to be a really ugly, ugly argument. Right. So I walk into the bedroom and he has his bedside lamp on and he's in pajamas under the covers. And so very quietly, non-aggressively, I sit on the other side of the bed and I said, I know you want me to withdraw the papers. I can't do that, but I can file this motion for a reconciliation. If you'll even just go to couples therapy. Yeah. And then he started he raised his hands to either side of his head and he sounded like he was crying, but there was no tears. And he started saying in a very disturbing tone, I've done everything for you. I don't deserve this. And at that moment I thought, this is not good. So I stood up and I started back towards the door and he jumped out of the bed. And I said, you know, do not approach me. Do not bully me. If you sit on the bed, I will stand here and talk to you. Mm -hmm. So he started to sit down for just a moment. And then he sprang at me and I can only liken it to like a cheetah. Like he just leaped and he put his hands around my neck. And in one motion, he just tackled me to the floor where he landed on top of me. And I landed on the hardwood floor. There was an area rug, but I landed on the hardwood floor and he started strangling me and slamming my head into the hardwood floor. And part of me, it was almost like having an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to jump up and say, okay, cut. You clearly didn't get the script. You're supposed to slap me or like maybe push me down the stairs. You're not supposed to go on to full on killing me. Of course, I couldn't say that because I was being strangled and you're in shock. You just couldn't believe what was going on. Yeah. And when he first tackled me and he did that, I screamed. And then I immediately realized the only person who would hear my scream was Abigail in the next bedroom. So I remained silent. I didn't scream. I didn't want her to come into this situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so 
the attack, which lasted approximately 35, 40 minutes. Oh my gosh. Oh, it was a long attack. Margaret. Oh. And he was slamming my head into the floor. I was losing consciousness. He said, I'm killing you. He was pulling out gobs of my hair, like basically scalping me. And then he, and then I started to fade to black. He picked me with his hands around my neck. He picked me up and threw me on the other side of this. There was a king size bed. He threw me on the other side in front of the fireplace that was in the room. And then he picked up next to his bedside table. He had this long metal mag light flashlight and he picked it up and he's always had that next to his bed. And when we were dating in years before, I would say, why do you have to have that big flashlight? Like, why can't you have like a little plastic one? Right. And for years, even when we lived in DC, when we were just dating, he said, oh no, that's a weapon in case there's ever an intruder in the house, that's a weapon. And so of course, never did I think it would be used against me, but he can, and this is where so much of the brain injury happened. He used this as like a bully stick, this metal flashlight and broke almost all the bones in my face and massive attack injury to my head. Everything was to my head and he broke my jaw and paralyzed one side of my face from the impact and a lot to my forehead. There were, uh, it was, it was a very much of a bloody mess and I lost consciousness again. And when I came to, he was still kneeling on top of me um, with my arms pinned by my side. And I said to him, Mike, please stop. We can work this out. Oh my gosh. As you're bloody and being beaten. And you said, let's work this out. Uh, because I just want to survive to protect the girls. Stop it. Right. Whatever and, you can do to stop it. Exactly. And the thing was, I knew at that moment when I regained consciousness, the inside of my head, and I've likened it to like a watermelon getting hit with a baseball bat. Like the inside of my head just felt like mush. And I just knew to the depths of my bones, I just knew that I was going to die that night. And I thought I'd have to maintain, I have to keep it together long enough to save the girls, to get help here or somehow save them. And so it was somewhat, I mean, although it was incredibly painful, I think by a miracle or the grace of guardian angels or God or whatever, I was able to withstand it. But he, at that moment, he, cause I had lost my vision as well. It was all just a blur because of all the impact to my head. And he sat back on his heels and he tilted his head to the side. Cause I could see him tilt his head. And he said in this very icy, calm voice, like he was considering it. He said, you're just saying that because you're scared. And then he Shazam. continued to hit me with the flashlight. So then I blacked out. And then when I came to, he, yeah, I think I blacked out then he got up and he was said he was going to go to the bathroom and he was going to kill himself and he wanted me to help him. And so I'm still trying to completely out of his mind. Yeah. I'm still trying to, and he's, but he's still like very goal oriented and oddly calm. And there was no alcohol, no drugs involved. He did not take any drugs. Mm He was not a heavy drinker and he had drank nothing that night. And so it was just this murderous rage that if 
he wasn't going to have me. I was going to be gone. And so he, as he left the room said to me at one point, and I'm kind of shortening it, but he said to me at one point, he said, do not touch the alarm. And as I'm laying there in a pool of blood, I thought, what an excellent idea. I'm going to go touch that alarm. I thought of that. Right. (laughs) Right. Thanks for that. (laughs) Great idea. So I like literally crawl because he's in the master bathroom and it was a pretty big house. It was a big suite um, upstairs area. So he wasn't like right on top of me. So I'm pulling myself across the floor. There's a big dresser, double dresser against the wall where I know where the alarm is on the wall Mm -hmm. and I pull myself up on it, the dresser. And then I know that there's a, there's a button that has a police shield on it. Yes. A blue police shield where you can silently call the police. Right. But I can't see. So I'm trying so hard, like in that split moment to remember where it is on the keypad. Yeah. And I do my best guess. I press a button and the alarm goes blaring. And I'm like, oh, no. oh wrong button. And so then oh, I just press oh, all oh. the buttons. He comes flying yeah. back in, yeah. tackles me again. And then I'm down the floor. And then he said he was going to go downstairs and get a knife. Oh, my gosh. Oh. He's going to cut his jugular vein. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm sure that knife is meant for me, but at this point, I'm just, my mind is like, what's going to happen? And I blacked out. process it all. Right. I blacked out again. And then when he came back, what I don't, I don't actually remember him. I don't think I remember him coming back, but the next thing I, when I came to, I could hear all this commotion in the master bath again. And the house was silent. There was no alarm. And I thought to myself, you know, I bet the alarm company called when I was, of course, course. and he gave them the code word. That's right. Everything's fine at the house. And now they're not coming. And so at that moment, I just thought I've got to get the girls out of the house Mm because no one's coming. Yeah. And I don't know how I did it. It's beyond explanation, but I stood up. I'm in, you know, my nursing, like pastel nursing, like gown and uh, terry cloth robe covered in blood. And I go to Abigail's room and I open the door and I said to the car right now, daddy's trying to kill me. And she just jumped up from being asleep, jumped up and ran with me. I went into uh, Lily Rose's room and grabbed her out of the crib and basically just kind of held her like a football mm-hmm. and went down the back stairs to where the garage door is and stumbling, holding on to her. And I get down there, it's dark. And I said to Abigail, are you, are you in the garage? Cause I still can't see. And he, she said, or barely see, I just yeah. is like light and dark. Yeah. And she says, no, she said, mommy, I'm in the mud room. And I said, get in the car now. And so she, we both go into the, into the garage, into the car. I just laid Lily Rose on the front passenger seat of course. and, and Abigail's in the back seat. And I had left keys in the car when I came home after being at my friend's house when he was served, because not that I was fearing this, but I thought he has a violent temper. And if he starts to scream and yell, I don't want to look for my purse. I just want to get in the car with the girls. Forethought. Oh my gosh. Great preparation. So I had left the keys right in the center console or in the car. So I just grabbed the keys, started the car and I open the garage door and I'm thinking he's probably hearing that we're leaving. Yes. He's going to push the garage button. Yeah. He's going to push the garage button down. So I'm thinking in my mind, I'm just going to have to floor it and break down that garage door. And luckily he didn't show up. 
And so I ended up leaving. I went down this very dark road. At this point, it's about 10, 10, 10, 15. And I know all the exact times because of all the police reports and um, when the alarm was called and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I drove about towards the town. It was in New Canaan. And so the we were about a mile from the downtown. And I was driving on this dark road and Abigail's in the back seat saying, mommy, are we okay? And she can't see me because it's dark. So she doesn't see that. I'm just covered in blood. Yeah. And, and it's she probably doesn't. And so I get to the end of the road that, which is about almost a mile from our house, which dead ends. And then at that point I like looked in the, and I drove this road all the time. So I knew I could see light and dark. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I knew enough to kind of just do memory of driving it several times a day back and forth the town, I could, I got to that end of that road and I looked in the river mirror and there was a long straightaway behind me Right. and I saw no lights. And so I knew he wasn't right behind me. And then my adrenaline just plummeted whatever energy I had. And I started to pass out. I could feel myself passing out. So I just pulled into the very first house that had lights on and I put on the horn and I just stumbled to these strangers. I didn't know them, this wonderful, this lovely couple and their daughter was home from college and I stumbled to their front door okay. and they opened the door and I just collapsed onto their floor. And I said, my husband tried to kill me and my daughters are in the car. And then I laid on that floor while like, you know, police and paramedics and everybody came I eventually rescue. Yeah. I eventually got taken by ambulance. And then the police were actually already on the way to the house because of me pushing so many alarm buttons. Mm -hmm. And so they decided, I don't know if they ever called. I never knew that part, but they decided this is not a false alarm, you know, press that many buttons and they were on the way to the house. And so then they were getting called ahead saying, this is not just a normal call. And so a lot of squad cars were going to the house and they arrested him and I got taken to the hospital. And basically, I mean, the, the, some of the police officers, some of the police officers who were at the scene testified at one of the trials that they didn't think I was gonna survive. They thought I would probably die in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And they um, took me to the hospital and I was in emergency for hours getting- Getting needed medical attention to keep you alive. Yes, and they were afraid that my brain was bleeding out and right. I was kind of in and out of consciousness and throwing up blood and- Oh my gosh. But then the detectives showed up and they were trying to interview me. And I was adamant as a lawyer. I knew, I knew it was unclear whether I was going to survive. And there was, I had to get my statement out. I had to get my story out to protect the girls so that it would be preserved in the event I did die. So they were saying, cause I kept throwing up blood. We should probably stop. And I said, no, you're not stopping. You have to wow. stay till I can wow. tell you what happened. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that. And there were massive injuries. I'm just, right. Um, my heart's racing because this is, I, I'm right there with you. It's just almost exhausting. I'm, I'm just so heartfelt, heartbroken for you at the same time and for your children that this happened to you. It is just um, a horrific story, 
that I'm so sorry that you and your family went through. I'm um, just trying to process all of the anger and all the violence that one man could um, could could put on one family in this in that short amount of time. And Mary Margaret, I have to tell you that we've been talking now for uh, almost an hour, and there's so many questions I want to ask you, and I'm I'm tempted to consider having a second interview because we usually go for about an hour, but I think this is such powerful dialogue that we should explore. I wanna to talk to you about what happened in your recovery from this massive brain injury. And I wanna hear about your girls and understand how they're doing. And you can tell us if you'd like to a little bit more about them, but would you be willing to come back and talk again? And let's finish this up with a part two and talk about the successes and all that, all that you've been able to accomplish since, since that attack. Would you be willing to do that? Absolutely. I would be very happy to do that. That would be, I would really appreciate that. There's so many, and I'm sure our listeners, and I'm going to encourage them actually to send me questions so that maybe we can do a little Q and A, because I think that this is such a powerful, we want to, as I said earlier, that we want to bring attention to the intersection of brain injury and domestic violence. And I think this is worthy of continuing this, this conversation in part two. I would be happy to do that. Thanks so much. So Mary Margaret, thank you from the bottom of my heart that you endured all that pain, I tell you, but you're a beacon of hope. I can't wait for everybody to hear what you've accomplished since then. Thank you so much. Listen for our next week's episode, part two. And if I could just add something in terms of to think about part two, you know, I realized very clearly just even recently in the last couple of months, someone was talking about my healing and how, I mean, I'm definitely impacted and, and have to learn to cope with the traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. But one thing that allowed me to heal was I wasn't angry in the sense that it was almost like getting a get out of jail free card. I was with this man who threatened me. And now the girls and I were going to be able, because it was so horrific that we were going to be able to go on and have a happy life. And so every day I didn't, I just felt that I had been, and I thought I was dead that night and I lived. And so I think having that positive attitude is what allowed me to continue to move forward day by day. You're quite remarkable in, in having heard that as well. And we talked earlier about being so positive. And I think of an, uh, an old adage that said, my glass is full, half air, half water, but it's always full. And that's what it reminds me of is that you have such a, a profound understanding of the situation and how that you're thankful that it's ended with uh, the, the freedom and the ownership of the future of your two girls. That's really remarkable. And I, Abigail really summed it up very well within the last year. She's now in college. She's a sophomore. And we were, I was talking to her about my optimism to a fault. And she said, you know what, mom, she's like, your optimism is what led you down the path to give him so many passes, but your optimism is a, what allowed the three of us to not only survive, but to thrive because you were always looking toward the light and moving us in that direction. So that made me feel very good. <laughs> that. Truly, truly, I'm thankful to have this time with you and I'm looking forward to the next episode with you.
same. I want to thank all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us. Here's my virtual hug. You are not invisible to us. Thank you.